It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. The phrase Las Vegas or bust has been in use for many decades, but it takes on a whole new meaning when it comes to Jane Mansfield. Jane Mansfield was not only larger than life and a star in Hollywood, but she performed in Las Vegas as well. My guest, Eve Golden, is author of the new book, Jane Mansfield, The Girl Couldn't Help It, published by the University Press of Kentucky. It's available on Amazon and all the usual places. And Eve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start with a broad question, and I use that in a, obviously a double entendre way, but what was the impact of Jane Mansfield on American culture? I'll say I'm a broad who can take a question, so that's just <laughs> fine. Uh, the impact of Jane on Hollywood? On American culture itself, because she oh wasn't gosh, just... Oh my gosh, well, it was a give and take. She grabbed what was there in American culture in the 1950s and exaggerated it. People think of her as a parody of Marilyn Monroe, but she was exaggerating everything about fashion and hair and uh, just silliness in pop culture. She was fun. That's the thing everybody loved about Jane Mansfield. Marilyn Monroe hated being Marilyn Monroe, but Jane Mansfield loved being Jane Mansfield. But both of them were smart enough to know that they were creations. They were artifices. They were, but they both had trouble getting out of that. Jane knew what she signed up for when she became a pop culture sex symbol, but as she aged, she had a hard time getting out of that mode and being taken seriously as an actress. And let's face it, she was no Meryl Streep. She was one of these actresses who, given a good script and a good director, was capable of turning in a very good performance. But unfortunately, she rarely got a good script and a good director. She didn't, but on the other hand, she did have some acting chops. People don't realize that, but based on your book, and I've obviously read those chapters that address the issue of acting, and she, in one sense, was panned by many critics, but on the other hand, she did have those talents. They may not have been, as you said, she wasn't Meryl Streep, but she could still act. She was excellent uh, dramatically in The Burglar and The Wayward Bus and gave wonderful comedic performances in The Girl Can't Help It and Rock Hunter. So she could be very good, and as we'll be getting into when we talk about Las Vegas, she was surprisingly good on stage because she loved the give and take with the audience. And before we get into Las Vegas and and Jane in general, you would think that focusing on Jane Mansfield would result in a book that was fairly thin. On the other hand, yours is very thick, so clearly there's a lot of material out there on her. There's so much on her. I love talking about her films. She gave a lot of interviews, and a lot of interviews were given that actually weren't hers, so I had to be very careful deciding what were her words and what weren't her words. And there's so many little side alleys, things that I would discover looking through newspapers, like the Great Wig Robbery of 1964. I mean, I could not not do a paragraph on that. I want that to be the next Ocean's Eleven film. When you decided to write about Jane Mansfield, what was the first step or two that you took because there was this wealth of material, or did you know there was before you started? I did a lot of research beforehand to make sure that there was enough on her. A big problem with biographies, there are people I'd love to write about, but there's not enough documentary material on them to get a book out of. 
And I always recommend to biographers, when you're first starting a book, make a chapter-by-chapter chronological skeleton and put it on your bulletin board so you can make sure, oh, my God, I just spent 500 pages on 1956. You can hop (laughs) around from place to place. So I had to make sure that Jane was doable. A lot of really good potential biographical subjects are simply not viable. And when you looked at this material, I noticed you mentioned it in the book a couple of times that there were things that were said about her or that she supposedly said, but that even you weren't able to verify that that was the actual case or that was the actual statement or that it was true. Never pretend you know more than you do. If I don't know if something is true, I will admit it flat out. And if it's still a good story, I will tell it and say, well, this is the source I got it from, and you can make up your own mind whether it's reliable or not. And before, again, we get back to Jane, how did you get into this business of writing biographies? Because this obviously is not your first book. I was working as a copy editor at an ad agency, and I'd always been a Gene Harlow fan. And I thought, isn't there a shame there's no book on Gene Harlow? And being young and stupid and having no idea what I was getting into, I thought, I know, I'll write a book. How hard could it be? And I was incredibly lucky and found a good publisher, and that that started me. Now, the sad part is, Eve, that Obviously, some of our listeners will know who Gene Harlow was, but others will not. And that's always the case when you're doing biographies of personalities and actors from another era. Well, this is the only thing I like about this stupid century is YouTube. So I can say Gene Harlow or John Gilbert, and people can look them up on YouTube. Right. They don't have to go down to the library and try and find it. Exactly. The The, the rest of the century I have no use for, but I love YouTube. (laughs) Well, also, too, people do get lazy, but it's not that hard, as you say, to look it up on YouTube and say, what is is she talking about? Well, when I was a kid, when you wanted to see an old movie, it was on at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you had to sneak downstairs and not wake up your parents and watch it on television with the sound turned all the way down. And now I can just pick up my smartphone and look at it anytime I want to, which is just remarkable. That is the amazing part of the 21st century. So getting back to Jane, what was it specifically about her that intrigued you enough to devote X amount of time to not only the research, but the writing and the rewriting and the editing? And then well, I have show. to find a subject I like, somebody I can spend a couple of years with. And you can't not like Jane. She's like a human marshmallow peep. She's just adorable. She's messed up. She's funny. She's eloquent. I mean, she's just somebody who's, who's like her or not, as an actress, she's a fascinating person. And she captures your attention. She just has that energy about her, or did she have that energy she about her. She had such a sense of fun about her. She enjoyed every minute of her life, even the bad parts. And re- interviewers who came prepared to hate her and scoff at her came away saying, you know, I still think she's a terrible actress, but this is one of the nicest people I've ever met. She had a sense of that the whole artifice, didn't she? In other words, she knew she was putting it on, but that was what it took to become a star because that's what she wanted to do from an early age. She did, but she could drop it. You see some interviews with her where she doesn't use the little baby voice, and she's very eloquent and well-spoken and obviously thinking out what she's saying. So it's remarkable how she could really take up and put down that persona at will. What was the most surprising thing you found out about Jay Mansfield Even after you started the research, you thought you knew everything about her. And clearly, none of us know everything about anybody. But 
given the fact you were focused on her for a couple of years, what was the one surprising thing you found, or may, there may be more than one, but the most surprising thing that you I, found I think it her? was how really eloquent and well-spoken she was. There are some interviews with her where she's just obviously a smart, thoughtful, intelligent, well-educated woman, and you don't really expect that from her, which makes it all the more baffling and infuriating that she made so many boneheaded decisions. Those decisions... Was it her that made those decisions or her oh, advisors? Or, she was okay. a steamroller. What okay. Janie wanted, Janie got. got and it. her husbands and her oldest daughter and her agents could not talk her out of it. That's what broke up a lot of her, her marriages and relationships was she would not be told no. And the girl couldn't help it. That's the perfect title for <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Was she willing to admit when she made a mistake? No. No. <laughs> Flat out. In other she words, posed her- for Playboy and in 1963 and appeared topless in Promises, Promises, and everybody told her, oh my gosh, Jane, don't do this. This is terrible. No studio is going to touch you. No television station is going to hire you. And she would just refuse to admit she made a mistake. She said, well, I never signed on for Playboy. I mean, they just, I don't know how they got those photographs. (laughs) No, she would never admit she made a mistake. But if she had close advisors and friends and husbands who told her, let's say, not to do A, and then she went ahead and did A, after that happened, she wouldn't admit to her advisors or her husbands, you know, you were right and I was wrong. She would just go on to the next project. No. Whatever she did was right. Right. And do you think, though, that was what propelled her into stardom because she just was blind on that area? I think so. She was absolutely, she was so ambitious and so driven and so single-minded that it turned out to be both a blessing and a curse for her career. I asked you in the beginning about her influence on American culture, but I wonder whether because culture changes over the years and over the decades, clearly her impact in the 50s and 60s, as opposed to later on, and in fact, here now in 2021, is different. And we'll talk about that, her rise and fall. But looking at it from the prism of 2021, can, after reading your book, can people grasp the impact she had on American culture at that time, meaning the 50s and 60s? Well, not only at that time, but still, I was surprised to find out she's kind of a pop music icon and has been for the last 20 years or so. There are so many rock songs written about her that I was, I was stunned. Another great thing about YouTube is I was able to listen to every rock song about her. I think my favorite is I Walk Like Jane Mansfield by a <laughs> Japanese rockabilly group. Did you ever follow up, Eve, though, with any of these groups just to find out how it is that they incorporated her image and her sensibility into I their music. I did and never heard back from a single one of them. Amazing. I, th- I would think that they would want to contribute to the book to get, to get the sense of why she influenced them even today. I mean, one group sang Jane Mansfield was a punk, and I tried to get a hold of them to find out why was Jane Mansfield a punk, and <laughs> didn't hear back. <laughs> yeah, so just like Jane, you have to steam forward and continue the book without these people contributing. There, there were some people I just could, who politely refused to cooperate, which I totally understand, and some people who were just marvelous uh, and, and gave me great quotes. In terms of sources, earlier I asked you what was the most surprising thing you learned about Jane Mansfield. Who was the most important live source for you today in writing the book? I would say both Nelson Sardelli and Matt Simber. Well, uh, well, let's talk about Matt first, but then I want to get into Nelson Sardelli, because Nelson, of course, is well-known in Las Vegas, has been a part of Las Vegas forever. Oh, yeah. But tell us about Matt. 
Matt Simber was Jane's first husband, and he's often been painted as kind of a villain who took her away from Mickey Hargitay, which is not at all true. He was a very respected theater director, and when they married in 1964, I believe it was, he tried to get her away from the horrible movies she'd been doing and back into live theater, which she was so good at. So he was genuinely helpful, has a great sense of humor, very funny guy, and really tried to help her. And unfortunately, by then she had developed a drinking problem and she would not admit that she had a problem. And he told me that, you know, you can't help someone who doesn't admit they have a problem. That kind of ended their marriage. But he really did his best to try to get her back to her theatrical roots. Was he able to provide you, in addition to his own recollections and his own point of view, was he also able to provide you with documents? No, no, just great quotes and great anecdotes. Jane was very funny. She had a great sense of humor. And did you get a sense when you talked to Matt, for example, that what he was saying, obviously it was coming from his point of view, but it had the ring of truth to it? Uh, it There was, because he was tough on himself as well as being tough on Jane. And he and Mickey Hargitay had some very bad, I would say, fights and confrontations. and, And he was very honest about that and saying that really he has absolutely nothing against Mickey and, and has only good feelings for him. And before we get to Nelson and before we get to Las Vegas, of course, he was one of many husbands of Jane. Was he the most important in her life or was Mickey the one that was really the most important? That's kind of hard to say. It would be sort of insulting to all of them to say one was more important. Mickey was the most public, certainly. I mean, her first husband, Paul Mansfield, is the one who supported her early on and got her out to Hollywood in the first place. So she may never have made it to Hollywood without Paul. Mickey was kind of a male Jane Mansfield, in a way, physically at least, because he was so over the top as a big, happy, you know, nice muscle man. But Mickey was not a show business guy. He wanted to open a landscaping company, which he eventually did, and wanted to stay home and be a normal person. And staying home and being a normal person is not part of anything Jane Mansfield wanted. Even though, obviously, she had a daughter and a family, she still was not going to be staying at home. She would tell, based on your book, she was telling, obviously, reporters and interviewers that part of her life was always obviously spending time at home with her kid, but it seems that she was much more busy going out and doing publicity material. She always, she talked a good game when it came to being a good mother, and she genuinely loved her children and wanted the best for them, but her idea of being a good mother was having her kids with her 24-7, and... They, she should have let them stay with their fathers occasionally and not drag them all over the world on her, her tours and her movie shoots. Yeah, it was always in the eye of the parent, though. So let's take a break. My guest, Eve Golden, is author of the new book, Jane Mansfield, The Girl Couldn't Help It, published by the University Press of Kentucky. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. These days, everyone needs a little help. Even if you're starting to get back on your feet, Three Squares Emergency Food Pantry Partners and mobile food sites are still open and ready for you. These resources are available for anyone who needs a little help. We're here to serve our city's children, elderly, at-risk families, and new families experiencing job loss or extra challenges due to the pandemic. Finding a location near you is easy. Just go to threesquare.org and click Get Help. Now, let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. 
Welcome back. I'm talking with Eve Golden. She's author of the new book, Jane Mansfield, The Girl Couldn't Help It, published by the University Press of Kentucky. And the book is available on Amazon and all the usual places. We were talking about Matt, and let's talk a little bit about Nelson Sardelli and Las Vegas, because Nelson has been a big part of Las Vegas over many decades, and he is very busy even today. I just talked to him on the phone the other day. And he plays a part in Jane Mansfield's life. But first, let's connect Jane Mansfield to Las Vegas. She appeared here at least three times. The first time, I believe, and the second time at the Tropicana, third time, and the last time at the Dunes. Jane was in Las Vegas four times, actually. Oh, four times. Uh, okay, then I, mis- the, I miscounted. At the Tropicana in 1958. Right. In Tropicana Holiday. And again in 1959, Tropicana Nightclub Review. And then in she was at the Dunes in 1960 and 61 in her House of Love. And later in her career, in 1966, the year before she died, as a matter of fact, she played the Fremont Hotel, but that was kind of kind of the downhill of her career. Okay, so I missed one. I thought it was three, but it's four. Okay. I thought that the Fremont didn't happen. Maybe that's why in my mind I was thinking of three rather than four. But let's discuss, how did she... It was very brief. She was at the Fremont for one month. Oh, okay. How did she view Las Vegas going into Las Vegas initially, again, in that time period? Because Las Vegas was different then than it obviously is now. When she first went to Las Vegas, she did it solely for the money because she and Mickey were building their pink palace and she was not getting nearly enough money from 20th Century Fox for that kind of outlay. And Las Vegas paid a fortune. So um, first she did it for the money, but she was her roots were theatrical, really, uh, not only on Broadway in Rock Hunter, but she started her career doing theater in Austin, Texas, when she was still in college. And she was so good at it. So she found out that she loved Las Vegas, and Las Vegas loved her, because the give and take with the audience was something that she was so good at. She would step down off the stage and into the audience and kibitz with people and joke with them, and never in a nasty kind of way. But she, she was just had such a warm, friendly personality that the, the stage and Las Vegas and nightclubs and cabarets were something she excelled at. And she was, again, part of a certain era where you had, you talked about Marilyn Monroe, but there was also Mamie Van Doren. There were others of that type of, call them actress or bigger-than-life personality, whatever we call them. What was it about that era, based on your research, that all of a sudden these types of stereotypes were there? Well, I think every era had its stereotype. There was the, the, the Edwardian girl next door and the Edwardian vamp and the 20s flapper. So I think it's, it's not so much that it's the kind of stereotype, really. And this was kind of an offshoot of the bombshell of the, the pinup girls of the 1940s. That, that Jane came just at the, at the end of that era, and so did Marilyn. I mean, Marilyn was kind of a Betty Grable type when she started. And then she obviously morphed into something much more in terms of just the pop culture of the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jane was like, Jane was bigger than life, and, and she loved being bigger than life. You cannot picture Jane Mansfield at home in a sweatsuit <laughs> reading a book or watching TV. It was an interesting mix of traits, because as you said, she could be larger than life at the same time, she was hard to hate if you met with her and interviewed her because she was very likable and down-to-earth in some sense. Oh, she was the nicest person. Matt told me that he tried to get her. There was kind of a fake feud going on between Jane and Zsa Zsa Gabor. And when they were on a talk show together, Matt was 
suggesting these really good, nasty, funny lines for Jane to jab at Jaja, and Jane laughed, and she couldn't bring herself to do it. She said, no, that would be mean. I can't say that. There's a lot of photos in the books. Oh, I spend a fortune on photos, and I think that's so important. It is. I, I agonized over every photo and every photo I had to cut. And there's a classic photo, which you have the first photo in the book, is with Sophia Loren and Jane Mansfield. And it was the welcoming party for Sophia Loren in Hollywood. And I won't give too much detail, but it, it is worth Oh, buying. everyone has seen that photo. Yeah, <laughs> it's worth buying the book just to see the photo again and a very, very clear version of that photo as well. So getting back to Vegas, though, what, now we have Nelson Sardelli. So how does Nelson meet Jane? Well, Jane and Nelson were playing at the same time in different shows, and he wandered in and... They thought that since he was wearing a tuxedo that Jane Mansfield must be expecting him at her table. So he met her there and he took a look at her and she took a look at him and both of them gorgeous. So uh, he saw her show and told me that he didn't think that much of it. Nelson is, is, even when he was very, very young, a real professional and knows what goes over on stage. And Jane her Vegas shows were not really terrific. There's a record album of one of them, and the, the writing and the songs, I've heard better. So Nelson thought, you know, I'm not going to say anything. It's not polite. We've just met. You know, maybe if we get to know each other better, I'll make a few suggestions. But they met totally by circumstance. He happened to be walking by where she was playing and stopped in and to see her. And the relationship developed from there. And he... Yeah, if you see when you see pictures of Nelson, and of course he was in a couple of movies, especially one with Mae West, so he seems to be in that world of very beautiful women. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, who wouldn't want him, Nelson Sardelli, to be part of their world of beautiful women? <laughs> I'll be happy to hear that. When Jane performed in Las Vegas, did she feel at all that she was away from Hollywood, or was it from her point of view an extension? I know she did it to make the money, but was it also a refuge for her, or is it just an extension of Hollywood for her? It's definitely an extension. Jane, right up to the end, wanted to continue being a movie star. She did television and she did stage work, but movies were always her end goal. And she was still looking for movies at the time of her death and still doing movies. They were terrible movies and they were low-budget movies, but being a, she, when she first got the lead role in Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, which made her a star, she was disappointed because it wasn't a movie. And she finally realized, well, this is an end game that can get me into the movies. She was probably the only actress that was mad that she was cast in a starring role in a Broadway hit. What was it about the movies that attracted Jane versus the stage? You mentioned that she wanted to be the star, and clearly she was a star on stage on Broadway with the Rock Hunter play. So what was it that she knew about movies that nobody else seemed to know about movies. That, that's why she wanted to be there rather than continue on Broadway, even in a starring role. Well, she grew up watching Shirley Temple, loved Shirley Temple. She did not have a really unhappy childhood. Her father died when she was young, but her mother remarried. and She had a very good mother and stepfather. She grew up upper middle class in Texas with friends. So it's not like she had a really hard, horrible childhood. But she just loved the movies. It was a whole different world, and she wanted to be a movie star. And a lot of us wanted to be movie stars when we were little, but we grow out of it, and she never did. Was there a drive there? Because usually people that grow up in poverty or in bad times, they tend to have a much higher drive than someone who's raised in an upper middle class or, or wealthy background. 
Well, Jane lived in a world of her own, in a, a, what her mother referred to as a little pink bubble. And she reminds me of Mae Murray, the silent movie star, who also just lived in a world where Mae Murray is the biggest star and will always be the biggest star, almost in a Norma Desmond sort of way. And, and everything she does is right, and everyone knows who she is. And Jane Mansfield was much the same way. She just lived in a world where Jane Mansfield was the greatest star ever, and everyone loved her, and no one could tell her any different, which is kind of nice because she was happy. Yes, happiness is definitely underrated, I think. I mean, maybe a bit delusional, but happy. (laughs) What accounts for her fall from grace in a larger sense? Not any individual decision, but just in a larger sense. I mean, some of it is, is her own fault, but 20th Century Fox treated her very badly. They hired her as a threat to Marilyn Monroe, and even though Jane was much more professional than Marilyn, I mean, Jane would always show up on time and stay late and know her lines and work well with others. Fox treated her terribly. She had three hit films for them, two comedies and a drama, and then Fox kind of lost interest in her. They were losing money at the time in the early 1960s, late 50s, and they would loan her out to cheap foreign films. They would loan her out to other studios, and they just dropped her in 62. I'm still mad that she didn't get the part that Susie Parker played in The Best of Everything, because I think she would have been wonderful in that role, and that's one of my favorite films. George Cukor dropped her from two major productions in the early 60s because he didn't take her seriously as an actress, which, you know, shame on you, George Cukor. Was she aware when she was playing in these B-movies that she was not where she should have been from her point of view, or did she just do it anyway because it still kept her in the public eye? I, I think because it kept her in the public eye, even... Critics were saying, why is she doing these terrible films? And it's better to, you know, save your money and look for a good project than appear in something like Primitive Love. Why did she do that movie? I'm unable to conceive why she would appear in such a cheap, horrible, bad film. Or Las Vegas Hillbillies. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, she did love country music, genuinely. She grew up in Texas in the, in the 40s. So, I mean, she was a country music fan. But, oh my gosh, yeah. Mamie Van Doren said that, you know, they both needed the money and it didn't take much work. But she had to know that this sort of thing would ruin her reputation or further ruin her reputation. You mentioned earlier on how many husbands she had. You didn't give a specific amount, but you were... Three. Three. Thank you. We were talking about husbands. Did she go through advisors the way she went through husbands, or did she keep the same people? She had sometimes three agents and, you know, three publicity people all at the same time, and she was taking advice from all of them and scheduling things all at the same time, interfering with each other. She would sign anything you put in front of her. She did those Jane Mansfield hot water bottles, and (laughs) I I interviewed the guy who invented those. I was amazed. He's in his 90s now, but he had a wonderful memory, and some of her advisors were like, Jane Mansfield hot water bottles, are you out of your mind? No one's ever going to take you seriously, but she didn't care. (laughs) She had a fascinating life, and you captured it in the book. My last question for you, if she were to look back, I know this is speculation, but overall, looking at her life, would you think she'd be satisfied with it? I think she enjoyed every minute of it. She loved being Jane Mansfield, so I I don't think she would have any regrets. She lived life to the fullest, and even when it was tough going, she just, she stayed in the trenches. Mm Mm-hmm. With her head up and looking at the stars while she's in the trenches. Very, very well put. 
That's a, well, that's a great way to leave it, I think. Well, no, I want to leave it with your last day, but what would you sum up? I don't want to leave it with my last observation, but how would you characterize Jane Mansfield for the 21st century audience? I think human marshmallow peep sums her up. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> yes. But some of her movies will make you sick if you eat them too quickly. Understood. Okay, we'll leave it at that. My guest has been Eve Golden. She's author of the new book, Jane Mansfield, The Girl Couldn't Help It, published by the University Press of Kentucky. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places. Eve, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.